You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Yesterday evening, our parish gathered to talk about immigration and all of the trappings of that conversation. We, We gathered in this space, actually, and Martha shared her story, and we all listened and asked questions and engaged this really wonderful topic. And in that time, and we have these conversations regularly, they're called, Who's My Neighbor? When we hear those stories from our own people, which isn't recorded, it's not even really um, something we advertise for like the, the rest of the world. It's really for our own parish. It's kind of our family living room conversation to discern the kingdom of God in really divisive, really charged, really complex issues like immigration. And to pray for our own people and for our neighborhood um, in light of those things. Um, though our conversation was scheduled long before the shootings that happened in El Paso and Dayton, um, the Holy Spirit has a way of actually timing things geniusly, perfectly. And we experienced that as we had the conversation exactly at the right time. Um, and in my own family's hometown, El Paso, where they are targeting, they, the gunman was targeting Mexicans, um, this conversation not only hit close to home for me, um, but also I think to our own parish as this is part of our state and uh, so many of our own folks who are either immigrating into this country or in the process of it um, that we welcome as brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. And what a defiant thing to do, if you think about it. How wonderful that is. Um, Some of you may have received the pastoral letter that I sent to the church this week uh, addressing some of those issues. If you haven't read that, um, would you you, um, tell me or tell one of our leaders we can forward that to you? I'd appreciate, um, or we can print it out and get it to you. I'd appreciate you guys all being... Um, caught up on everything that's happening in, our li- in the life of our parish around that conversation. In light of all that, and in, in this morning, there are a few changes in our service that I just wanted to signal ahead of time that we don't typically do. First, um, we're circling back to this passage in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, we've heard this a couple weeks ago, but I want to address a very specific matter in this passage, and so we're going to be dealing with that this morning um, as I preach. And second, when we come forward to the altar to pray, um, in light of everything that's happened, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer in Spanish. Um, it's going to be on the screen. But we're doing this as a way of not only praying for um, those who are targeted, but praying with them and recognizing these are members of the body of Christ. These are our own brothers and sisters. And so I wanted to use that time as we join together to remember that we actually come to the altar with them also, and we pray with them and are for them. So those are two things that are happening in the service. Um, but about this sermon, I remember as a teenager um, having a little bit longer hair. We always went, all of us, I'm sure, went through a phase where it was a little awkward. This was my awkward phase. And I told my dad, I'm going to dye my hair orange, dad. And my dad said to me, I remember in the like, barbershop place, I think I was getting a haircut. I was going to go home and dye it. I'm going to dye my hair orange. My dad said, uh, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that, that's going to be great. And I said, dad, if I want to dye my own hair orange... I'm going to dye my own hair orange. And my dad kind of looked at me and said, son, if you have to prove that you're in charge, you're probably not in charge. I still feel the cut of that. I can still see it. Um, I have great parents. I still have great parents. But what wisdom. When you have to so prove, so overcompensate to demonstrate that this is my hair and I can do whatever I want with it, maybe you're not so in charge as you think. 
the early church, they faced a similar dynamic. Different forces in the world competing to prove who was in charge, who got to call the shots, who was in power. There was incredible pressure by the empire, the Roman Empire at the time, to conform. Pagan culture at the time, incredible pressure to conform for Christians coming into the church. And even in this church in Colossae, where we read this, this Paul's letter to this church, there was pressure to conform within the church to Jewish custom and tradition. And at the root of what Paul is addressing, and there's many things he's addressing, but at the root of the issue of what Paul is addressing to this church is this one key question. In this world, in this church, and in our own lives, who's in charge? Who's really in charge? Who has authority? Who gets to say who's in? Who's in charge? So Paul tackles this. And I want to hone in on verse 8 in chapter 2. Um, Alex has it for us, and we'll put it up on the screen. In verse 8, let me read this for us. It says this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Hmm. The verb here, take captive, syllogogain, um, N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, says was a, actually a brilliant word choice for Paul to make. And he thinks that what's involved here with what Paul is saying, syllogogain sounds a lot like synagogain or to synagogue, verbing synagogue, the place of worship, implying make sure that no one synagogues you as you come to Christ. Make sure that this, this Jewish faction within the church doesn't make you have to be Jewish before you can be Christian doesn't detour you on your way to coming to Christ. The issue is about circumcision and, and observing uh, the, the festivals and all of the uh, dietary laws, all of the Jewish custom. Make sure that you don't get synagogued on your way to Christ, is what N.T. Wright believes Paul is implying, and I can see how that might be the case. Whatever power would want to co-opt you, would want to intercept your loyalty as you come to follow Jesus or deform your obedience to him, watch out. Don't be taken captive. I wonder how Paul, reading this to us this morning, would say that to Rez, to our church, to our neighborhood. See to it that no one Republicans you. See to it that no one Democrats you on your way to becoming a Christian. See to it that no one Facebooks you. What are those forces? What are those scripts in the world that shape who we are, what we believe, what we think, that call for our loyalties, that shape the, our opinions that we have? Where, where are we most formed? Do we spend as much time with the word of God and around his table as we do on Facebook or studying our political platform or somebody else's? We're getting worried by seeing what's on Twitter. I don't know, where are those places? What are those powers and forces that comp compete for your loyalty and obstruct your obedience to Christ is basically what Paul's getting at. There's nothing wrong with being a Democrat or Republican or, or being involved in, in the political world or um, even reading the news. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is that the problem with these tribes or these loyalties, these forces, is that they often and always overpromised what they can deliver. They can't deliver what they would like to promise you. 
And the reason is, is because they're actually not in charge as much as they would like to think. This isn't their world. All of their power, it's on lease. It's borrowed power. And it will be power and authority that it will ultimately, and is right now, held accountable to the one who is actually in charge and in power. You can tell, by the way, these um, faux powers, because they always deal their power from a place of fear. That should be a red flag and a signal that they're not really in charge. You'll hear scripts like, fear Mexicans, the invasion that's happening. Fear Democrats, because man, they're, they're falling off on the left. Fear white people, because you name it. Fear black people, fear the rich, fear the poor, fear gay folks, fear everybody. This is how these fake powers operate in the world. This is their fuel, this is what they do. This is their status quo. And so it's no wonder when Jesus steps up to the mic and says, do not be afraid, that his voice is so contrast to these fake powers of the world. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What contrast? True power doesn't operate on fear, but on the authority of love that conquers all fear. Amen? That's really good news, y'all. If you want to know how to navigate and operate this world of fear, love. And you want to see someone do it, look at Jesus. After all, this is his world. He is the one seated at the right hand of God the Father, running things, isn't he? Who else is doing that? Anybody? No, it's him. It's his world. He is the one who rightfully has the title Lord and is truly in charge. He is God with us in the flesh. Look at verse 9. Talking about Jesus, Paul says this as he continues. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him. And you, friends, listen, you have come to fullness in him. Who is the head of every ruler and authority? This is such good news. This is such good news to me. That Christ is actually the head of every ruler and authority. Thank God it's the one who has defeated death and sin and nailed it to the cross who's in charge and not somebody else. Thank God it's not one of us. Because we've had a really awful record of using power and authority to oppress and kill and abuse other people. Thank God it's the one who's actually resurrecting us who's making all things new, who has taken all of sin and evil and death into his own body and trampled over it and remained victorious from the grave. Thank God it's that one who's actually in charge. And nothing, nobody else, no, com no competitor, think about this, no one else can lay claim to his throne and no one else will obstruct his will. What he desires will be accomplished. In verse 15, he says, it says, uh, Paul writes, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing, verse 15, talking about Jesus disarming the rulers and authority. This isn't just some sort of um, beautiful metaphor to get us inspired. The most powerful government historically, the most powerful government at the time, the top religion at the time, conspired to put Jesus to death on the cross. This really happened. 
stripping him naked, parading him publicly in shame, crucifying him in the most public and gruesome kind of way. But check this out, when those powers had done their worst, when those powers had unleashed all the evil they had, all of their power, all of their fake authority, when that had been unleashed on him, they were exposed for the fakes that they really were. They had run out. They were kids wanting to dye their hair orange at this point. I'm in charge. When in truth, all authority belonged to the crucified Jesus. And it still does. Amen? Amen. When kings or rulers would return from battle, they would enter the city and they would drag behind them their defeated enemies. Can you imagine a World Cup or a World Series or Super Bowl where you have the winning team parading through the town, right? It's on TV and the losing team has to follow them. Can you imagine how humiliating that would be? This is the image that St. Paul uses to talk about what Christ does to the powers of the world that obstruct his kingdom and his will. Those powers that would stand up against him, they're laid low. And not only that, but they're drugged through the streets behind him as he parades. And that parade isn't just in the church, but it's through our neighborhood. It's throughout the entire world. It's a very public thing. You might see some of those forces um, that have taken you captive, maybe in the defeated part of his parade. Can you imagine seeing some of those things that you think, well, but I had allegiance to that or to this. So this was part of my identity. This informed my opinion. This shaped me, seeing that defeated, paraded behind the victorious one, Jesus. If we see those forces in our lives paraded behind Christ, we should repent and say, oh, okay, Jesus, you have defeated them. They no longer have a say. Maybe we see Jesus parading through our town, dragging behind him all fear, racism, white supremacy, white nationalism, violence, abuse. Who are the defeated enemies behind Jesus that he drags through the town? Dehumanization, violence, deceit, foul speech, murder, neglect, all forms of oppression, defeated. And when we see those defeated enemies, the church, his disciples following him, we actually must look at them and denounce them. It's not good enough just to make a mental note. We actually have to denounce them and repent from the systems and the ways that we have maybe been co-opted or contributed to those things. We have to repent and say, no more of that. Christ has defeated them. Our time of confession that we do in just a minute isn't just a part of the liturgy that it's like, well, we got to do this as part of the formality of things. Um, We never, for instance, say the confession. We get on our knees and we actually confess our sins in the words of the confession. There's a moment of silence that we begin the confession with. That time isn't just dead air. We haven't lost our place in the prayer book. We're actually confessing our sins. I invite you to do the same. And when we do, repenting and turning to Jesus, the church realizes what she's been all along as we repent. This bride of Christ, that visible sign in a broken world of God's grace, his salvation that he's given to us in Christ. A people filled with the Holy Spirit. A peculiar people, because they're not like the rest of the world, but they're filled with the Spirit. They have different loyalties. 
They talk differently. They obey the risen one. And in a world, friends, of panic and fear like ours, in a world of violence and darkness, it doesn't take much to stand out when we follow Jesus. So shedding these evil powers that hold us captive, we are freed up then to return home, to come home. In the church, as followers of Christ, as his disciples, not afraid to follow him, not afraid to leave behind those forces that once had our loyalty, but eager to follow and obey him, that we would be caught up in the witness of God's kingdom together as a community, and that others would see this kingdom in its glory, and others would turn to Jesus and realize, oh, you know what, he really is the answer. Today, I was, or this last week, I was at the liquor store, and the clerk was like, hey, Father, because I was wearing my collar, and uh, he said, uh, how's it going? I was like, well, it's, you know, it's kind of crazy these days. And he said, yeah, it is. And um, he said, what do you tell people in these kind of times? And I already heard my answer, and I thought, that is the most cliche thing for a priest to say in a liquor store. And I didn't want to say it. Well, I hesitated, and then I, but I didn't have another answer. Jesus is what I tell people. What else can I tell people other than Jesus? He's actually the hope. In a world torn down and disoriented and lost, Jesus is still actually our hope. I shared with him our pastoral letter. I shared with him the fact that Jesus has defeated those powers that fight for our loyalty. And when we obey him, when we resist the ways of the world and follow Jesus, there is a light. There's a hope. Really. And he said, thank you. Wow. As if that was a surprise. Our neighborhood actually is dying to know where there is hope. And as a church, we have the answer to that. Not only in the ways that we speak, but also in the way that we live, the way that we embody the presence of Christ in our neighborhood. Friends, as we come to the table, can we all just take a second look here about the fact that Christ is really in charge and that we belong to him and that we come to his table not, as, not only as an act of obedience, but as an act of first loyalty to say only in him and only in his body and blood will we be fed, will we see the hope that's for the world, will we be made new. There's no other place than this altar. There's no other place than Jesus. So let us come to prepare ourselves to receive his kingdom this morning and be fed and nourished by his own life and become the hope that the world is dying to see. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.